Hey guys, David here. Uh, we got a last minute sponsor and time is of the essence. So we wanted to, uh, add this on to the beginning of the episode. Um, Tyler. Okay, here we go. Wonder Mill Films needs your help to get their smart and acclaimed genre movies onto Netflix, Hulu, and iTunes. From May 25th to June 23rd, the Southern indie filmmakers are raising funds via Kickstarter to gain wider exposure for their sci-fi adventure, A Genesis Found, and their noir thriller, The Nocturnal Third. The films have screened at universities across the Southeast and have been reviewed by Film Threat, Man I Love Films, and yes, Battleship Pretension. To help get Wonder Mill's southern genre films from the south to your couch, that's the campaign, visit thenocturnalthird.com or battleshippretension.com and click on the banner ad. So uh, do that while you are enjoying this episode of Battleship Pretension. Indeed. Thanks. Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How are you? Uh, I'm, I'm feeling good now. Okay. But you, you weren't feeling good a moment ago. Well, um, I, was, I was in a rush. I, mean, I was here late. We're getting a bit of a late start because of me. Yeah. Because uh, I had to rush from work. And I, and I, but I stopped. I don't know. Okay. This is a, for long-time listeners. Okay. I don't know if you remember, Tyler. Back when we first started doing the show, in my old apartment on Canyon Drive, yeah, I lived around the corner from a place, uh, or, or, uh, a, a Tommy's outlet. There was, <laughs> is, that what, is that what they call it? It's a franchise. I don't yeah. know. A, a Restaurant Tommy's seems lo- a little too lofty. But a Tommy's location. Yes, there you go. Um, Tommy's, for those who don't know, is a, uh, I guess, Los Angeles and maybe Southwest chain. Just a middle of the road. Uh, no, it's awesome. Because their thing, well, they, I, yeah. Okay, here's. Okay, let me talk for a second. They do not do a hamburger with ketchup and mustard very well. No, because their thing is chili burgers. Like, you don't. If you order a burger at Tommy's, mm-hmm. you have to tell them if you don't want chili on it. The chili is their thing. So yes, when you go in and you order just a plain patty, that's you're ordering the delivery system without the thing that is the point of the place. So that's anyway. my favorite comic strip character is Plain Patty, by the way. <laughs> so, uh, I, yeah, I was in a rush, didn't have time to eat dinner, stopped at a Tommy's and had a delicious, I scarfed it down before we started, a delicious double chili cheeseburger. You know what? This reminds me of something. Okay. I want to I throw this out. In case we have any listeners that work at a fast food uh, burger okay. place, uh, I do want to say, and look, I know I've got food stuff. I get it. Here's the thing. If somebody orders a hamburger, they want a hamburger. They don't want a cheeseburger. I know you may like a cheeseburger. I know that most people may like cheeseburgers. Hamburger means no cheese. Yeah. Otherwise, I would have said cheese. Yeah. But people just, I don't know what it is. I don't even really eat, I don't do the drive through thing very much. But almost every time I do, if I say hamburger, it'll pop up on the little display, hamburger. And then, and, and then, then it'll have and it'll have cheese because I think people just yeah. assume. Well, everyone likes cheeseburgers. I, yeah, I no, like some of us don't. But that bothers me on principle. That it's upsets so me. upsetting. Well, let me say something. Okay. To the uh, fast food employees, 
Do you, do you get some sort of bonus at the end of the month if you still have a certain number of ketchup packets? <laughs> Just give me five or six at least. <laughs> I want uh, I want more ketchup than you are giving me. However many you think I want, I want two more. Okay, that that's what I that's what I want to say. Anyway, this is this is off topic. We are ignoring our guest, and we're we're, gonna... and we're, we're getting into our what's going to be another podcast we're starting, <laughs> which is Burger Talk. <laughs> But uh, okay, but yes, we do have a guest. Cle- clearing the air on fast food—that's what it's, it's going to be about. Um, but yeah, uh, but we're going to keep ignoring our guest for just a bit because we have some podcast business right. to attend to now. Um, uh, uh, as you, if recent episodes have shown, we are uh, sponsored by uh, an independent uh, feature called Sleep Debt. Yes, D E B T. Right. It's like like debit, but without an I. No I in debit. Um, right. Okay. I'm just saying. Sounds like a, a misguided coach. <laughs> All right, kids, uh, there is no I in debit. And also, there is an I in debit. But if, it's if debit without not, an I. If, if there's not, it becomes debt. debt. So the sleep debt, uh, you, you know, you, you'll, you'll see the... Um, the uh, what's called a skyscraper banner on the right side of our of That's our right. uh, website at battleshipretention.com. You can click on that for more information. Uh, but I'm going to give you some more information right now. Go get them about this movie. Sleep debt is a low budget feature in the vein of classic Twilight Zone episodes. When a disturbed man is visited by vivid dreams, which which turn out to be another person's consciousness, he must discover his connection with the stranger before it is too late for them both. Sleep debt is available online through Amazon.com. And I did want to say to the director, uh, Patrick, that uh, he, he, as mentioned in a previous episode, he did mention that he was going to send us some copies of the film. He has. I haven't gotten a chance to uh, look at it yet, but, uh, but I will. And uh, perhaps we'll throw a review on the, on the site there. But yes. Yeah, once they're done sponsoring us, we'll review them. I feel like, yeah, kind of, right? <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to decide about the ethics of whether it's, not whether yeah. it's responsible to review a movie that has... Yeah, paid us to feature them. Yeah, because then it's like, you know, if if it's a good review, then people are like, oh well, I guess if I pay them enough money, they'll give me a good review. If it's a bad review, then it's just like, well, now they're just trying to compensate for the fact that they got money from this person. We can't win. <laughs> so, let's, David, let's just make sure it's completely middle of the road and mediocre. And uh, yeah, you will read the review not knowing how we felt about the film. <laughs> um, and then I also, of course, want to talk very seriously for a moment mm. about tweakedaudio.com okay because it's the best it is the best place on the internet to buy earbuds <laughs> uh and you know no you know what tweakedaudio.com is the second place second best place to buy earbuds okay the best place is tweakedaudio.com slash pretension there you go absolutely uh and and that's where you get, go to get the uh, professional quality earbuds that tweakedaudio.com uh, excels at creating in many different uh styles and colors our guest is brandishing them uh <laughs> quite dangerously in fact <laughs> yeah. um right now um tweakedaudio.com slash pretension is where you go to get those self-same earbuds in those self-same styles and colors but for a third off with no shipping um i mean no again it's if free they, shipping. They will ship it. Yeah. You just don't have to pay. This for isn't the a scam. If you pay the money, they'll ship it to you. I always, that, they I won't say that wrong. They won't uh, charge you for that. Uh, it's like uh, no, you your earbuds are paid for. They're sitting right here on the counter. Come and get them. Can't you just imagine some guy chomping a cigar and just be like, "No, I got them. You pay for them. Yeah. Uh, I'm not giving no them to anybody else. They're all yours." Uh, <laughs> um, so that's at tweakedaudio.com/slash pretension. Go there and check out uh 
those earbuds and mm-hmm. buy some for a third off. <coughs> Tyler, why don't you ta- introduce our guest while I take a drink of water? Okay, go get him. Uh, so our guest has been on the show before. Uh, he has written uh, reviews for us as well. Uh, it is, f- and you know what? I believe since you've been on the show, you have uh, started a a film podcast of your own. It's uh, Renaissance Man, the way I look at it. West Anthony, West, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me back, you guys. Uh, I'm sorry it took us so long to get to you. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Yeah, by the way, it's uh, it's not Tommy's restaurant, and it's not Tommy's. It's it's Tommy's shack. Right. It's, that's what they are. They, hence the immortal catchphrase: If you don't see the shack, send it back. <laughs> <laughs> I also, but also, the name of that place is actually not Tommy's. It's original Tommy's. Yeah. Well, because there was there's there are pretenders to the throne. If yes. you look around in some areas, like in some shopping malls and other places, like T O M Y. Yeah. Yeah. They're trying to put one over on you by you know, omitting a consonant. But uh, yeah. Yeah. And you know what? It it probably does work on a lot of people because it, it look. Tommy's isn't the greatest thing in the world. It's it's nice. Oh, it's I, one of my favorites. I I love it, but I can't eat it as much as I used to. Now it's it's like a, a rare and steamy treat for me whenever I get a Tommy burger. Uh-huh. Uh, but the, calling it original Tommy's makes me think that it's got to be. Uh, if if we still used phone books, hard to find in the phone book. <laughs> sort of like when I worked at a, at, at the video store, um, the video store uh, where I worked, um, and uh, my boss or my assistant manager was the hard ass about this kept wanting me to put the film laura croft tomb raider in the t's mm. and because if you look at the case of the film laura croft is very small right. at right. the top and then it says tomb raider but my like sort of obsessive compulsive mind doesn't work like that yeah, like, it's called laura croft the name of the film is laura croft tomb raider maybe it goes under l maybe he thought that laura croft was the name of the star of the film and <laughs> yeah. she just had her name over the title <laughs> Now this is not this is not unlike uh, a friend of Jen's whose name I won't say. Not I don't think she listens to this. Is it Laura Croft? It's Laura Croft. Yes, we've already bad mouthed her enough <laughs> for being in that terrible Tomb Raider film. But uh, but no, this uh, friend of Jen's and David, you know this because you like to reference it all the time. Oh. Years ago, <laughs> oh, this drives me crazy. Years ago, there was a show by Aaron Sorkin that is not very good called Studio Sixty on the Sunset Strip West. Yes. If I, <laughs> um, if I were to say Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, shorten that. Studio 60. That's right. right. That's what any right-thinking person <laughs> any, would say. It, it doesn't matter if you're black or white, male or female, old atheist or young. Christian, old, young, liberal, conservative. It doesn't matter. You would say Studio 60. I think that's what everybody was calling it after a while. Well, ah, hold on. Ah, hold on. I'm sorry. You're incorrect, sir. <laughs> Uh-oh. There is one person in this world who, when they shorten it, they say Sunset Strip. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of weird. I mean, and this is a perfectly nice person, a perfectly intelligent person. I don't understand it. Also, here's the thing. I, when we've talked about this before that I haven't really pointed out, a person who lives in the Los Angeles area where the term Sunset Strip is... More I like, don't think she, I don't think she lives in Los Angeles area. I think oh. this is a place where we previously lived. Chicago is where it is. There's oh, only one okay, place we I see. Okay, lived. that's so, a, yes. that's a bit different. Yes, because I yes. thought this was after you'd moved out here. Right, but nonetheless, like I'm trying to think if Studio 60 was 
on when you moved. I think like they burned right off before. those last th- yes. three episodes after you moved out. Yes, two thousand six is when it when when it when went it up. started. Yeah. But it, those last few were yeah. early oh seven, which is when you moved. You moved here January oh seven. Is that yes. right? Yes. All right. So yeah. that's neither here nor there. But it's it's one of the most re- just one of the crazy again intelligent, sensitive, well spoken person. Yeah. And this is the conclusion she came to when it comes to shortening Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. Well, not only that, but then I would, if you were calling it that, then I would end up getting it confused with the old TV series 77 Sunset Strip. Oh, with, my. With Ed Kooky Burns. Or, or, or <laughs> just getting it confused with the Sunset Strip, which is an actual thing that people might talk about. Yeah, that too. <laughs> or that, that movie, The Mayor of Sunset Strip. Right, sure. You know, any yeah. number of, of options. There's a lot of, whereas Studio 60... I'm not getting maybe maybe that movie 54, but that doesn't even have studio in the title. No, it sure doesn't. Anyway, so okay, you might get it confused with the uh, Phil Collins song Susudio. I get that confused with a lot of things. Actually, <laughs> I hate that song. It's, it's a perfectly really fine. It's a perfectly fine song. No, but, it's ugh, not. no, thank you. It's really bad. I'm not. I'm just trying to. There's a. There are a lot of musicians that who whose work I just don't understand. <laughs> And Phil Collins is kind of one of them. And Susudio is just like, I don't know what that is. There's nothing to understand in Phil Collins' work. <laughs> well, I like the early Genesis. Genesis, Genesis is okay. Genesis with, with Peter Gabriel, I like mm-hmm. uh, a lot. Yeah. You remove Cap- when, Peter Gabriel. Phil Collins stayed where he belonged behind the drum kit. Back up the drum yeah. kit. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, Peter I, Gabriel was the Don Simpson of that, uh, of that <laughs> matchup. I refrain from criticizing Phil Collins too much because he, he collects vintage weapons from the Alamo. <laughs> and he, he might have a mind to use one. So you know, just, just leave him alone. That's all. Just to be on the safe side, everybody. So I thought he just used his songs as weapons, like when he saw that guy see that other guy drown. <laughs> Again, a thing that can't possibly be true. There's yeah. a lot of things. Because then what was Phil Collins doing? Yeah. Why didn't, you, why didn't he run and call 911? Yeah. At the very least. Well, I don't think there was any 911 at that time. So. How, how, how old is 911? I, I seem to remember it only being around in like the 80s. Uh-huh. But then maybe it just came to LA in the 1980s. I don't know. Maybe it's been around longer in well, other parts early, of the world. The earliest reference I can think is uh, Public Enemies 911 is a joke. And right. And that 80s. was late 80s. All right. Well, I don't Whereas know. In the Air Tonight was uh, 1981. Well, who knows? That solves it. Phil Collins right. was too far away to do anything. All right, listeners, email David on this one because I'm not that interested. But email we d- West, West at OurTourCast.com. Now, uh, <laughs> is that right? Is that actually? No, email? I don't think it is. <laughs> you know what? That's Maybe that's you, you for can, the best. Uh, Just, go ahead and tweet at me. I'm at Dr. West Anthony. I'll, I'll be very curious to know the history of 911 now that, now that it's come up. Yeah. Now that's Dr. West Anthony. Yes. Right. We'll have more plugs like that at the end. Oh, sure. That's just a taste of what okay now we can't get to the topic yet and i know that we've burned through a lot of a lot of tape Eh, whatever i think this is going to be a long one and i'm okay with that okay yes last time west was on it was a long one and it is an episode that we continue to be complimented on yes to this day even though we did very little work yes well done west (laughs) yeah so um but before we get to the topic uh the top of the show topic was not Phil Collins, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, and hamburgers. <laughs> I know. It's hard to believe. Um, uh, yeah, that wasn't what we had set no. out. The top of the show topic is something that is... I don't know why, but I'm furious about this. <laughs> and so, 
if you're bothered by profanity, I'll try to curb it. It probably I will not be successful. So there is a new show that's going to be uh, debuting on Hulu, exclusively on Hulu. Hulu.com. Hulu.com. And it is created by filmmaker and uh, iconoclast uh, Kevin Smith. Bon vivant. (laughs) Podcasting raconteur. (laughs) Yes, I suppose he does that too. Um, Uh, But yes, Kevin. Gadfly. Oh, no question about about that. Oh, I love that term. So... um, (laughs) But yes, Kevin Smith, so he's he's created this show called Spoilers, which a little bit behind the curtain. Yeah. Spoilers was one of the one of the names that David and I threw out for this show. It was a considered name yeah. for this show. It was Spoilers, the Film Cabinet. And Was that uh, one of them? Yeah. And then we I were think- between Battleship Retention and the Film Cabinet for a long time. Oh. And we also considered before we knew that uh the great video store that now hosts our yeah. uh, videos, uh, Cinephile, um, we were going to be... Yeah, Cinephile with an F. Yeah, with with an F. Um, and then we also jokingly thought talking about movies could be a funny name for a yeah. podcast. Yeah, cause that, we, I'm we, so glad we didn't go with that. That joke would have gotten old episode two. Oh, no question <laughs> about it. Um, because it just... It doesn't... It, oh. But it was such a funny joke, especially if you just know what we are, uh-huh. which is, you know, hopefully on our best days, you know, academic and pretentious. Right. But just like, just two guys sitting around talking about movies. What do you think of uh, F.W. Murnau? So um, that's neither here nor there. Spoilers. That's the name of the show. Uh-huh. And for those that don't know, uh, there have been some ads uh, put out there in which Kevin Smith, in a surprisingly animated fashion, talks about this show being an anti-movie review show in which he will watch a movie with an audience and have a discussion about it. what kind of an audience made up of? Just people. Regular people. Just regular Regular people. people. You know, Joe Schmoes, plumbers, I, I assume. Uh, just people looking to be entertained, David. Salt, the salt of the earth. There Absolutely. might be a few irregular people. <laughs> there might be some extra regular people. <laughs> and I um, think he's. Go- I think. I think he's going to put in place a strict screening process to make sure these are regular people. I always think of question one: Are you wearing shorts, <laughs> <laughs> jeans, or slacks? Slacks. Get out of here, elitist. Um, I always think of. Uh, uh, I know this is like not a very. Oft talked about movie. We were just talking about Danny Boyle uh, before we started, and in A Life Less Ordinary, a movie that, in retrospect, I don't think is very successful, but that I loved in high school. Mm-hmm. But uh, Maury Chaikin plays the sort of town weirdo in the small town. But there's a part where he's at the front door and he insists, "I'm regular. I'm a regular person." <laughs> <laughs> oh man, Maury Chaikin, the uh, late and lamented. Yeah, he, he was. He was great. gone he too was awesome. soon. Yeah. Um, but anyway, and so the the so Kevin Smith will be watching a movie, a newer movie, with an audience, and then they will discuss it. Uh, he goes out of his way to say that they will not review it; uh, they will discuss it. And of course, his old buddy uh, Jason Mewes, who is uh, brilliant when it comes to talking, You're brimming with insight, no question, <laughs> brimming with insight, um, and just the general tone of kevin smith talking about this and his anti and he has, he's been anti film criticism just the idea 
I think only since Cop Out really is when it really a Jersey Girl. Who's although I guess he kind of ran, he kind of walked back from that movie in general. But yeah, with as Cop he, Out, as he did with Cop Out too. Yeah, but he Cop Out, he out. Re- no, no question about that. Uh, but he, yeah, I guess with Cop Out, he really turned uh, on critics, and um, and so. So there's a few promotional videos. One is he's being very energetic and trying to, I don't know, <laughs> trying to ex- make you excited about it through sheer, and I'm, uh, I'm going to borrow a phrase from Norm MacDonald, through sheer tyranny of will, just by his own excitement, like, <laughs> aren't you excited? I am. And so it's like, well, you're getting paid for it. But then there's another promotional thing in which he talked about when he was a kid, he watched Siskel and Ebert. He's like, and I would watch him just geek out about movies. And the thing that got me... Wait, does he say that in that video? Yes. Uh, he, he, there's two videos. Oh, okay. There's the one that the I one. showed you. Yeah. And then there's another one where he's a bit more calm. I won't say subdued, but he's a bit calmer. And he talks, he gives a bit more background as to how he came to this idea. And he said, I was a kid and I watched Siskel and Ebert. You know, I'd watch them geek out about movies. And when I heard that, I was like, I believe the term you're looking for is review. Yeah. <laughs> they reviewed movies asshole like you you are going out of your way to not use the word review because then you can't say that your show is an anti-movie review show and so and then he goes then he says like he goes we don't review movies we revere movies really do you do you reveal uh, do you revere all the movies because oh. then you have no discernment and you're a bunch of fucking morons this ties in i'm sorry this makes me so angry this ties into and i i want west's opinion here but um I can't remember if this has come up on the show before. It's definitely, we've talked about it. Um, over at uh, BadassDigest.com, um, a really fun and, and uh, entertaining uh, movie website, um, they have a, a guy, internet uh, celebrity film crit Hulk. Yeah. Who uh, will, he, he, I don't know if you're aware of this oh, guy. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I- I just did. I didn't know he was doing anything but being on Twitter. Uh, no, it, it, well, he was in the New Yorker magazine recently, actually. Yeah, very um, wow. unusual. But I think the first thing he wrote for Badass Digest uh, was this story about meeting Quentin Tarantino when he when he filmed Crit Hulk was a um, younger film fan and uh, getting to talk to Quentin Tarantino and asking. There was some recent movie. Um, yeah, I don't think he can remember which one it was. That Tarantino was like, "Did you see this?" And film crit Hulk said, "Oh yeah, I hated it." And Tarantino said, "No, you should never hate a movie. You should always, you know, uh, you know, even if you don't agree with it, you can learn from it." And and um, uh, and, and all this stuff. And there's this whole really well written. I really like this guy, film crit yeah. Hulk. Really well written stuff. And and this sort of rumination on whether or not you should. It's okay to hate a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and he comes down on the Tarantino side, but I don't. And because right. I think that there is a difference between the way that people who want to make movies think of movies and the way that people who want to analyze movies think of movies. Yeah. And I think uh, Quentin Tarantino uh, obviously um, learns from uh, uh, great and terrible movies alike and makes great stuff out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I don't have use for that. It's okay for me right. to just out and out dismiss or dislike. I shouldn't dismiss but um i i should you know still tackle everything head on and and treat it seriously but it's okay for me to not like a single thing about a movie yeah uh and and this goes back to and we don't uh, mean the filmmakers ill will if we don't no, like their no, film no that uh, exactly um and i don't mean them ill will by saying i don't care what they think about movies but i don't mm-hmm. i care what critics and uh serious film thinkers 
or film lovers think about movies. Yeah. People who make films, just like I don't think, and I mean, I know this is going to step on the toes of some of the people that are in our colleague that are our colleagues in internet uh, film criticism, but I don't think people who write TV, uh, or I, people who uh, report film news should be reviewing movies. I think, uh, I, I, I guess I'm being maybe fascistic or something, but I, I think there is a, there should be a sort of, purity if your job is to analyze the films as art then if you're thinking about either the news around them or if you're thinking about the way that they're made Mm -hmm. you know um uh too much uh then there's something tainted about your ability to review them so uh, i'm i'm of the opinion that anyone anyone who wants to can review movies that's fine go ahead as long as we know as long as we know something about you and you are self-aware enough to know that, oh, okay, I might be predisposed to like this or that because of my job or whatever. But there's a, there's a little moment, and it's it's very brief in the promo where Kevin Smith says he he's like, "You ain't never see a movie uh, already." I don't like that that sentence. You ain't never see a, a movie review. Sh- uh, I'm sorry, uh, like a film. He doesn't say review, right. like a film criticism show like this because this is by somebody you know who makes movies. Like that is more important right like he, he uses that as a qualifier like he's more I'm qualified to talk about films. Wes talk at all <laughs> yes wes i'm sorry That's go okay ahead. what do you think of this because i showed it uh, i emailed it to you earlier in the week yeah and you were already aware of it yeah i had become aware of it just a couple of days ago when they had made the announcement and I mean, the minute i saw that i i i mean i like to give people the benefit of the doubt whenever and wherever possible but just from the get-go it looked like a colossal mistake It looked like a giant clusterfuck, and it looked like a very deliberate slap in the face to anyone who reviews movies professionally or who blogs about movies on the internet. Or anyone who regularly reads movie reviews and puts stock in uh, what critics say or, 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 you know, uses uses criticism to help them uh, increase their thinking about mm-hmm. movies which is and that's i don't read i don't read critics to necessarily decide whether or not to see a movie i read way more reviews um after i've seen a movie yes. because i like getting different uh points of view and he's discrediting discrediting that whole thing it's almost like he's saying that um the less you think about movies the better and maybe that's true of his films well in some way i i think that's very much what he is saying, quite literally what he is saying. Because, I mean, that's, like I said, in the first five seconds, didn't he call it the, the anti-review show? Anti-movie review show. Yeah. So, I mean, he's pretty much stating up front that there is there is no place for valid film criticism within the confines of this television program. And the way he says it, the way he, he, he separates it out and he says, and I'll, I'll repeat myself here, he says, we don't review movies, we revere them. Why are those separate in his mind? It's it's that idea because of because people who review his movies review them negatively. Well, I guess there's that. Yeah, <laughs> he does have an experiential bias. But it, but at the very it's I've run, we've run into this before. I when working at a video store, working at uh, a movie theater, going to high school, talking to family members. Okay, basically anywhere you turn, you can run across this attitude of it's just like it's like man, you just don't like anything. It's like no, I love movies. And as long as I'm not looking to hate them, because you will run across that as well, as long as I'm not looking to be, you know, to be upset with a movie, then I feel like it's perfectly valid to say that most movies are, are bad. 
If you love food, I think you could say most food out there is bad. Oh, yeah. Any, if you love cars, most cars out there, they get the job done, but who cares yeah. ultimately? Like, I'm, I'm sure any uh, dedicated foodies who listen to this show are scoffing at my scarfing a Ooh. double cheeseburger, double, double chili cheeseburger <laughs> from Tommy's. And it's just, it's such a... It's it was just very dispiriting to me. Like I'm I'm angry, but ultimately it's just that idea of like it's not every well it's not every day it happens regularly, but it's not every day that like the choice that you make with your life that I want to do this because I love it so much and I feel like it's what I'm supposed to be doing is just completely just shit on by somebody at, at, who's like ex, who's exploiting that almost in a populist way like yeah, in a pandering exactly, way in, in a uh, disingenuously populist way like a disingenuous uh, politician who uh, insists that he or she is uh, not a beltway insider when they always are right or is a man of the people when they I mean uh, you know m- most people who um, achieve high office um, they tend to come from money in a, uh, mm-hmm. in a or they're good at getting their hands on a lot of money yeah. right yeah and, and so they, they they have golf courses and country clubs and all the yachts you can eat it, <laughs> yeah and um <laughs> so they uh it's they're all saying they're more um in touch with the common man than their opponent or than the than the media uh right. you know when they are the the opposite of that i mean I, i've i've not sure who whom I'm paraphrasing. Probably a bazillion people when I say that, like, uh, wanting to be president should be the first thing that disqualifies you from being president. Right. It, yeah, and actually, it's a very good analogy because that's very much true of Kevin Smith. Is that he's he's presenting himself as an outsider, but he is a part of the film industry. He is part of that community. I mean, I, I'm sure he really likes to downplay that and, and yeah. think of himself as some kind of eternal outsider. Uh, I I can't think of anybody more, and I I don't say this as a purely negative thing, but in the context of how he's presenting himself, I can't think of anybody more biased towards liking something than somebody who stands to gain something from saying this movie's good. Um, J.R. Jones, Manola Dargis, uh, uh, Stephanie Zacharek, you and I. Uh, all yeah, all, all these people have more in common with the audience than with the people who make movies. Yeah, or at least when it comes to when it comes to thinking about movies, we have more in common. Yeah, like I, it's, it's, it was very. My rage comes from from feeling insulted, as as West, you were saying, just kind of the, a slap in the face of the very idea of thinking academically and insightfully about film, not so that you can lord it over other people, which admittedly some people do, but so that you can engage with it on as many levels as possible, and just like, so fuck me for that, really, like. <laughs> Come on. Like, so it's, it's, and of course, the show I'm sure is going to be very successful. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. But, and that's the other thing, too, that I don't know if, if any of us have mentioned it yet, but I mean, that's part of the format of the show is that Kevin Smith is going to take 50 people and they're all going to go and see a, a first run movie and then they're all going to retreat to some studio lair or what have you. And then they're all going to have some kind of discussion that he's going to somehow moderate a la uh, Phil Donahue. That was the example that he gave, that everybody would be seated and he'd be running around waving a microphone at anybody who wanted to say something. That just sounds <laughs> terrible to me. <laughs> I, I don't know how. Uh, but, I, I mean, I, and uh, I They're definitely they're going to edit that, that down to half hour format. 
So I'm sure that we'll get the cream of the crop as far as whatever comments people are going to be making. But how much is really going to be said there that's going to have any kind of validity? Well, cream of the crop, I think it's going to be what's the most entertaining, not necessarily what's the what's the Yeah, most. and that's the other thing that I worry about. You guys are talking me into watching the show right now. Because oh. it's going to be a train wreck. That's <laughs> yeah. the thing. Rather than 50 people trying to, to make sense of a movie and trying to have some kind of valid opinion about it, it's basically just going to be, I think, I'm afraid, it's going to be 50 people competing to come up with the best kind of catchphrase punchline. Because, yeah. you know, that's what's going to make the final cut for the show. Yeah. And I, yeah, I'm... Uh, maybe this sounds populist, but I'm more nervous about the show, or not nervous, but more skeptical about the show because of Kevin Smith than because of the format of 50 people. I, I could see that. Well, a moderator who has made it clear, like, th- I think it can work, actually, if you have the right... It can if work to a, a certain if extent. If you had Phil Donahue, maybe. If, yeah. <laughs> um, who, you know, even though, like, I don't, I often don't agree with him, like, if you go back and watch, like, his show, like, he's clearly an intelligent, well-read man who wants to get, even if he disagrees with somebody completely, wants to give them their due. Right. And it's just like, oh, man, that's, oh, that's refreshing. But, uh, but no, this clearly, like, he's going to moderate it in such a way as to whip people up, I think, so that they'll say, so that they'll not necessarily parrot him, but that, you know, do you think he's going to be, like, going to try to get insightful comments from people or he's just going to get people like oh that was awesome or oh that sucked or something like that just that that does seem to be the audience he tends to Mm -hmm. court um and so it's just uh i don't know it it, we we're we're so often hurting for top of the show discussions like (laughs) we always have to be like "Uh, i don't know what, what have we seen lately but then when I saw this, it's just like, this is very much like yeah. in our wheelhouse because it's so frustrating that he just, because I was telling Wes before uh, we started recording that like, I was feeling really excited about like online film criticism for a while. <laughs> and then this thing, which will be an online thing. I mean, Hulu, you can watch it on your TV as well, but like, you know, it's an online entity and it comes along and because it's Kevin Smith, who's more famous than any online film critic, he comes along and just completely wipes the slate clean because even if it is not totally successful it'll be more successful than any other film podcast or blog or anything <laughs> like that and so well, it's uh, yeah. disheartening um well you you why don't you use that anger that energy going into our main topic okay and i will use the nervousness over what letters I'm going to, or emails I'm going to get for comparing us to J.R. Jones, Manolo Dargis, Karina Longworth, and Stephanie Zacharek. Here's the thing. <laughs> we're, we're at least as good as Manolo Dargis, right? I don't know. It's, I've, <laughs> I've, what I've read, uh, I, I like. Um, I'm going to venture to say you're not as attractive as any of them. <laughs> I've lost some weight. Um, but uh, I, here's the thing. We're not, a, we're not at their stature, certainly, but uh, my hope is that we're we're striving for the same thing, so I'd say that's we're, why you, we're good. We're good at this. We are talented. Were you critics. listening to that burger discussion earlier? We are, no, I, I I I specifically mean our written content on the website. Oh, okay, yeah. We are good. <laughs> we're good critics. Read that. Ex- I'm very proud of my extremely loud and incredibly close blog. Anything beyond that is just shit. Your review. Uh, yeah, my review of yeah. it. That's right. Yeah. Well, because our early back in like '08 when we first started mm-hmm. having a website, I would write about recent movies but mm. i didn't really think of them as reviews right because now they they're sort of, reviews 
Yeah, yeah, because they were more like musings or like musings inspired by yeah. uh, the movies I'd seen recently. No. But yeah, now I write reviews. Damn right. And you write a lot of them. Go to BattleshipPretension.com and just behold the sheer output of David Bax. Well, and then, it, for, for I guess maybe for a guy who has a nine-to-five job, I write a lot. But for people who... For people who whose job is blogging, I well, write yes. almost nothing. Fair enough, yes. But then also, if there's a title that you happen to like, that's me. Yeah. Almost always. Almost always. Yeah. I, I wrote one that I can't remember what it was now. They got a... Uh, that, that that someone commented on and I, uh, oh was it uh, deconstructing scary no no it was a, no it was the title that I came oh up that with. you came up with yeah, oh okay when you were out of town I can't remember what it was but I was like yeah I don't I recall like, oh, I remember that someone liked my punny title <laughs> <laughs> gotta remember that for that when I'm you know patting myself on the back in the future <laughs> um, okay so uh, as far as the topic let's go ahead oh I'm sorry I was about to say uh, a variation on your on your line. Did you say oh, it already? Line B, let's get into it, shall we? That's the one. That's okay. Well, um, no, you, it's. I'm glad you stopped me, or you stopped yourself, and didn't say let's get into it, shall we? Right. Because it's my job to say let's get into it, shall we? Exactly. So let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. So um, that was fun. <laughs> See, but you then you let go and step on it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I have to make it mine. So the uh, the time. To- okay, so. Uh, Fans of the show and listeners know that uh, the last time West was here, we discussed uh, the works of Bernard Herrmann, and that was a a fun show. We really enjoyed it. Uh, Listeners who listened to last week's show know that we played some clips from uh, Carter Burwell. Um, And I don't know what it was, but I think recently I just wanted to discuss movie music, uh, just specific, like, not necessarily themes, but uh, just bits of, of music and uh, composition and stuff that we really enjoyed. And uh, I kind of gave myself over to the idea of playing clips from it. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to discuss some of our favorite bits of music from films. And, uh, and yeah, we, we each picked four. And uh, so we're going to really try and not give a lot of introduction to each, each yeah, piece. Yeah, this, this hopefully will be... a. a- uh, maybe a, a lot of this episode will just be music, which yeah. is fun, and probably not entirely legal, but uh, we're pretty far under the radar. I think so, yeah. I mean, we're not Manolo Dargis. Right. I mean, if here's the thing. If somebody, if like, you know, who is it? If ASCAP, no, not ASCAP, ASCAP? Yeah. yeah, right. ASCAP if AS, or yeah, BMI. As, yeah. If they have a problem, they should take it up with the producers of Sleep Debt who brought you this episode. <laughs> so, um, sorry, Patrick. Um, the buck passes here. Damn right. <laughs> um, so, okay. So we will start, as we inevitably should, with West Anthony. Yeah. West, what's your what's your first pick here? And West why? the guest. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, boy, this was so hard for me to narrow it down to four. I mean, I had started out with like a, a temporary list of like 56 pieces, mm-hmm. I think it was. And then I just had to try and narrow it down. And I sort of desperately tacked in some some criteria to narrow things down for me. And uh, one of the things that uh, most of these uh, – pieces three out of the four of mine have in common is that there's some kind of unique instrumentation involved and the first one uh, all it is is a unique instrument it is uh, the harry lime theme 
from the uh, the 1949 film The Third Man, uh, directed by Carol Reed. The music is by Anton Karras, who is uh, a zither player. That mm-hmm. the entire score for the film is performed on a zither, which is uh, a many stringed instrument that uh, I don't think I could ever play. And it's it's got a very uh, distinct and beautiful sound. And I just uh, I really love the music. There's a I think there's a sort of a, a legend going around that uh, Carol Reed was in a restaurant in Vienna or something like that and Anton Karras was there playing the zither and and Reed just said uh, yeah that and th- th- I don't think that was entirely true and <laughs> at any rate that would be that that generally doesn't yield good results in case in point Richard Donner once hired a lounge band from a Holiday Inn in Duluth Minnesota for the Superman movie and boy <laughs> that was a disaster chuck those guys out god John Williams the rest is history um but yeah, he got Anton Karras, he found him in Vienna, and then brought him over to London to record the score. And by all accounts, uh, Karras did not have fun uh, working in London on the music. He was in there for like several uh, 12-hour days. He didn't care for that very much. Uh, when the movie was a big hit, and then the soundtrack itself was a huge smash, the, the Harry Lime uh, theme was a hit single, sold half a million copies, and he wasn't very happy with that either. He didn't like <laughs> all of the success and notoriety that it brought him. So there's no making this guy happy. And the success of the song also uh, uh, apparently triggered a huge boom in zither sales, uh, followed, no doubt, shortly thereafter by a bunch of zithers being thrown away after everybody realized, I can't play this fucking thing. But uh, it's it's a really uh, lovely and kind of jaunty piece of music that just completely uh, uh, is at odds with the, the, the mood of the story. It's uh, obviously, for those who've seen it, you know, it's a very uh, dark and uh, and kind of uh, unpleasant uh, tale uh, filled with uh, crime and and unrequited love and murder, uh, but the music is just uh, lovely and wonderful, and I, I I particularly love the Harry Lime theme. It's one of the all time great pieces of music, and I'm I for those of you who haven't heard it before, I'm very glad that you'll have the the opportunity to hear it for the first time here. Let's listen to it. All right.
Okay. Uh, now, I think I should go... Well, let me. Uh, I do so, want to comment really quick about uh, just the the Harry Lime theme. Uh, oh, good. Yeah, like, I, I like, do too. But I just didn't want you to leap into yours. I oh, want to no, be. No. I want to be as the person who has the least confidence in my picks because I, as I talked about last week, not good at thinking about or talking about or remembering music. Okay. I want to be sort of sandwiched in the middle. I want to be forgettable. Okay. No problem. Uh, so what I what I was going to say is that like it does it does the the music because that's the Harry Lime theme, but it is sort of just the all purpose third man theme um and it do, it is kind of incong- uh, incongruous with the content but it is notable that it's called the harry lime theme and harry lime himself is quite jaunty and kind <laughs> of oblivious to his own uh moral disgustingness and uh and so i feel like it's somehow appropriate that that would be the theme because he just He's just such a charming guy. It's a charming theme for a yeah. despicable yet incredibly charismatic uh, villain. Who here um, has seen Rob Cohen's Triple X starring Vin Diesel? Not me. I have. Do you remember? <laughs> do you remember that in the scene, the part where he's in Vienna, he walks into a club and the music in the club is like a techno remix of the Harry Lime theme. Yeah, I'd forgotten it till now. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks a whole lot. So, okay, <laughs> listeners, here's what you can do. is the, the, the beautiful little piece of music you just heard. Now imagine... Now, just now, forget that. Go, Act like it doesn't exist. No, go back, listen to it again, and just go... <laughs> yeah, there you go. So... Because I like to think that that the piece horror. of music is only good insofar as you can imagine it with a techno beat. So thanks for coming, West. Yeah. Um, it's, <laughs> it's just ripe to be remixed by many different people. Just go. Uh, okay, David, do you want to go next? I do. Um, right. And I'm gonna I'm gonna start. I'm, now you've laid out an order for me here. I'm going to disregard. It's just off the top. Yeah, this yeah. order. But I, uh, in general, I'm going to disregard this order. But I'm going to start with the first one you put on here. It's the only. Um, well, no, I, I guess it's not, three of my four are contain what you would consider to be the theme, uh, or, or some sort of quotation or variation on the theme. Mm-hmm. Um, one is kind of out of left field, but this is the only one that is specifically like the theme of the movie that plays like over the end credits, um, and it's um, uh, probably there. There are certain theme songs I find myself humming from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, John Williams' Harry Potter theme is one that I hum a lot. Hmm. Um, the theme to Hawaii Five O, <laughs> I have had my. I've pretty much had that in my head since I was five years old. That's a good one. It's so great. And I, I wish I had. I had known. The na- I wish I knew the name of the composer who came up with that. And uh, I also. I don't. I have never watched the Hawaii Five O, the new one, which I guess has is pretty much the same theme. Yeah, I mean it's a re-recording. In fact, uh, I had read somewhere that they weren't going to go with it, and mm-hmm. then somebody said, "What the hell is the matter with you?" <laughs> yeah, and then and then they put it in. So, but yeah. yeah, it's and I have I've watched the show uh, one and a half times, and it, it's a very faithful recreation of the original Hawaii Five O theme, which is really it really is one of the great TV themes. Yeah, uh, and then this third one gets stuck in my head a lot, which is Jerry Goldsmith's theme from gremlins it's called the uh, gremlin rag mm-hmm. actually um and uh in re-listening to it for for these purposes i found myself in my head it's not as dated as it actually is but i i don't want to sound say dated in a, in a bad way right. i think there was probably there was a time post 80s when people kind of rebelled against using using a lot of synth 
mm-hmm. you know, because it was such a big thing and so marked the era. But I feel like if you listen to um, contemporary pop music now, we've clearly cycled back to uh, a, a lot of a, a lot of synthesizer sounds. And so um, I think the Gremlins uh, theme or Gremlin Rag has uh, uh, has a place in some currency now, and it doesn't sound silly like i think it might have to some people right but um just as a as a melody it is um so driving and also so uh it it, it manages to get across the mischievous mischievousness yeah uh mischievousness uh whatever of uh, of the gremlins it's yeah. um it's it's jaunty and it has see, this is where my inability to talk about music uh uh comes in, comes into play because it, it is jaunty but it also has in in terms of its like tone there's a sinister thing to it no question about it it is it, jerry Gold, goldsmith is going to show up again and then uh, in this episode and then we've actually west and i talked about at some point maybe next year uh having west come back and do a profile of jerry goldsmith except i feel like that'd have to be a two-parter because he's responsible for so much great film music he did the omen yeah right which yeah. is um, he won his lone oscar for that yeah i mean that that, that movie doesn't hold up that well i don't think but, but that, uh, music that music is wonderful yeah um but yeah he manages to capture the the right spirit of really any movie that he scores and i can't think of a better example than gremlins which is it's everything you're you're saying it's mischievous there's a sin it's fun but there it's definitely sinister and so uh what we'll be playing is there's like a, a nice fluid it starts with like a nice fluid pleasant melody and then it gets interrupted by this thing yeah, yeah. much like the gremlins themselves yeah. like you're just going yeah, that's a good point. living this idyllic life no, and then here we go Wes, do you have any because we were just listening to it do you have any thoughts on, yeah. on- it's uh it's kind of interesting when you, when you were talking about uh you know the use of a lot of a lot of uh, synth use in the 1980s which yeah it kind of then went away and then it sort of came back but i think the way synthesizers are used now is sort of different because the way they were used back in the 80s everybody was treating them like they could just be a substitute for any other instrument Uh and that's what everybody was trying to do with them and it it was a bad idea because i i remember in particular the the instrument that i always come back to uh, when i think about that is an instrument called the uh the harmonium no, no, not the harmonium. I'm sorry. That's another instrument I'll be talking about later. It's uh, the Mellotron, which is really <laughs> lovely. Uh, it's a keyboard instrument, but the sounds are actually generated by a series of uh, uh, pre-recorded tape loops. And uh. you, use, you press the keys, and then it just oh. plays these loops. And some, you can get uh, loops of like uh, reed instruments, like flutes, or stringed instruments, like violins, or brass instruments. Uh, a, a really good example would be the very opening of the uh, Beatles single... Uh, Strawberry Fields Forever. That mm-hmm. is a Mellotron. Mm. Uh, but of course, I, I it, believe that Smashing Pumpkins used it in the recording of Siamese Dream as well. Yeah, I, I, there's it, there's plenty of uh, instances for all over uh, popular music, but that's that one is the the most distinctive and the, probably the one that I think a lot of people would be familiar with. Um, and the thing was is that I mean, it's obviously because it's a lot of tape loops and there's a lot of electronics involved in playing those tape loops it's it's a very kind of heavy uh a cumbersome instrument and then the synthesizer comes along and a lot of musicians are saying well i don't need this uh mellotron now i can use the synthesizer and i can play anything i want and, what, and- hang on what musician are you <laughs> evoking that's, that's there? how anton Karras talks. oh okay <laughs> <laughs> but as we now know uh 
the synthesizer can only ever sound like a goddamn synthesizer. It never <laughs> faithfully reproduces any other instrument. And so then, of course, then what happened as a result of that in the 80s, then uh, enterprising, uh, smart, talented musicians, the likes of uh, Michael Penn, say, or John Bryan, uh, they were able to grab themselves some Mellotrons on the cheap. Mm. And then as the 80s gave way to the 90s and people wanted to get back to more natural sounds and, oh, you want a Mellotron now? Well, you're going to have to pay through the nose for it, you short-sighted bastards. <laughs> but, and, Calm and down, this, Wes. Calm and down. And now, see, now synthesizers are, you know, they're still around and they're still being used, and they're, uh, but now they're being used purely as synthesizers. They're mm-hmm. not trying to mm-hmm. mimic something else. They're being used as a completely new and different texture for the music that, to, to create entirely new sounds. And that's the thing that I like about it. That's the thing that... Uh, uh, plenty of uh, composers are using now. I, I, I particularly like not just people who are you know making electronic music, but uh, germane to this discussion, composers who are using synthesizers along with orchestral accompaniment, and you get a really some really interesting combinations there. Like uh, uh, John Powell, particularly, I think of uh, with the uh, his music for the Born trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was doing some really good stuff there. More recently, uh, Daft Punk was doing some really uh, uh, interesting stuff on uh, Tron Legacy. And then uh, uh, Hans Zimmer is uh, doing similar stuff with, uh, you know, with the Batman soundtracks and with Inception, which uh, I almost included uh, in, mm. in this discussion. So it's... it's well, a- uh, speaking of Daft Punk, one of my favorite uh, electronic groups from, from the 90s, Chemical Brothers, did the Hannah score. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's that's I just need any excuse to talk about chemical <laughs> <laughs> and that's all good stuff. And the thing is, but they're using synthesizers as synthesizers. They're not trying to make them substitute for strings or for brass or something else. And I, I like that approach much better. And so, incidentally, here's something you can do if you want to get angry is uh, you can go into iTunes. You can type in the, the word soundtrack or something like that. And you will see like whole collections of like it's like, you know, great themes and what it is, and then you'll say, you'll be like, great themes. Okay, they got Jaws, they got Godfather, they got, okay, these are great themes. Why, why is there, is, does this have an average of a, a star and a half rating? And then you realize all of these themes are done with synthesizer. Ugh. And you listen, and it is comically horrible. <laughs> I mean, it is, it's delightfully terrible. Well, we've gotten far afield here, which we should probably try yeah, to avoid doing in the future. But that was, I think, a worthy discussion about yeah. synthesizers. And so keep that in mind while listening to this, The Gremlin Rack.
All right, Tyler. All right. So, uh, yes, much like uh, West, I had a difficult time narrowing it down. And for me, what I wanted it to be, I wanted to play... Uh, I think I, I, think I uh, zeroed in on, like, specific themes or main titles from, from movies. Um, and I wanted it to be uh, lesser-known uh, themes from well-known composers and then just composers that really aren't known very well at all and so uh i'll st- i will also go out of order and i will uh have this will play this theme which is the theme from uh the taking of pelham one two three no not the new one the original uh <laughs> and it's uh, it was done by david shire and it was in this it was in the 70s and it has that nice you 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 find it from time to time in like crime movies in the 70s it had kind of it has this kind of bombastic yet jazzy quality to it mm. And it just announces itself immediately. Like, there is no, like, ramp up to it. It's just right there, and it gets you immediately interested. And it's, uh, it's just so much fun to listen to. And I know that, I, Wes, I believe you almost included this theme. Yeah, this was on yours. my list of finalists, particularly just because, uh, yeah, I like that period of the late 60s, early 70s, when you had sort of a, a jazz musicians coming in and doing interesting things with the uh, with the musical scores. And this is this is one of them. It's a very yeah. jazzy score. It, it kicks ass. Yeah, the score for the taking of Pelham one, two, three. And it's one of two really uh, brilliant scores that David Shire did just in that year in 1974. The other one was the largely piano based score for the conversation, mm-hmm. which is just uh, beautiful. Uh, and there's I mean, like, uh, I, I'd also considered uh, Lalo Schifrin's uh, main theme for uh, the 68 film Bullet. It, which mm. is also very you know kind of jazzy and cool and uh, and then look at uh, Don Ellis's music for uh, the French Connection, which is just mm-hmm. the opening uh, music for that film. It's only like like a minute and fifteen seconds, and it's just so harsh and atonal and weird and loud and wrong sounding. Uh, but <laughs> but it just it works so well. It just it really announces itself that okay, you're you're in for something else because it was very much like unlike uh, other movies of the time. But uh, yeah, the the sort of jazzy uh, you know funky rhythm of uh, the, the taking a pillow one two three score uh, i i love it it has a it has a kind of uh it has a dragnet quality but also just so much more fun and and cool so we'll play that now the the theme or the main titles uh from the taking of pelham one two three nineteen seventy four
All right, it's back to you then, West. What is your second pick? And you don't have to go in order. Oh, yeah. I just wrote I those down arbitrarily. I wasn't going to, actually. Okay. But, okay. I mean, I am in this second example. But uh, uh, it's funny. Whenever I try to get into the music of Henry Mancini, there, there are some things that I really love and adore about his work. But then there's a lot of other stuff that I feel is like it's just it's too on the nose. It's too sentimental. It's too syrupy. And I don't know. I mean, like Moon River is something that uh, I I understand why a lot of people like it, but I could never get into it. And uh, even the Pink Panther theme, which I used to love, is just it's played out. So I'm just tired I don't of know. it. I I still adore yeah. it. Uh, well, you know what? It, it also, you know, it, they recently they just used. I don't know if either of you have seen Battleship. No, uh, no I didn't. The Pink Panther theme uh, uh, appears in the film Battleship, in the scene where... Uh, yeah, the, I'd say it's played out at that yeah, point. Yeah, Taylor Kitsch is trying to steal a chicken burrito from a closed convenience store, and, which, you know, there's so many convenience stores that is, close. Wait, is it uh, actually a piece of score, or is it playing over the... No, it's it's part of the... It's it's the score. It's not like playing over the, the, oh. the PA or something like that. That and, movie... Yeah, uh, it's you know just, what? That, that interests me way more than it, the uh, robots they're fighting. It's, it's an on-the-nose moment in a movie that is just too on the nose about too many things and and it's not a very enticing nose either um but <laughs> do you ever uh this is a bit uh complete uh, uh tangent here but uh in gross point blank the part i wish i remember the song i think it's a guns and roses song that's playing on the set like non-diegetically on the soundtrack and the moment he steps into the convenience store it switches to a muzak version that's pl- uh, like at the it's hmm. like the exact same moment in the song it's like sweet child of mine or something and there's a muzak version playing in the convenience that's cool. store i like at the that yeah that is very clever. God, I don't. I don't. I didn't. Don't remember that happening. <laughs> I, I got to go back and watch that movie. It's a great movie. I like, like that movie a lot. But uh, there are some uh, some compositions by Henry Mancini that I love. I I loved his score for uh, Touch of Evil. Uh, yeah. So much so that I mean, if you've seen the uh, the I I don't like to call it the director's cut because Orson Welles died before it was created. But right. I mean, Walter Murch created Walter it, Murch and, and you know the it still has the the opens with the three and a half minute unbroken shot, but. And that this new version, the new cut of it, the the music is gone, which is unfortunate because it's a great theme. I, and I love that music, and I love the 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 the, the ticky tack piano music that uh, you get at the end too. Mm-hmm. I, I, I so it's a great score, and uh, I loved his uh, music for Charade and his theme for uh, another Blake Edwards film, uh, Experiment in Terror, which is just another really very weird and and dark tune that also has a weird instrument. It is a there's two auto harps which are sort of in the zither family but uh and that's the reason why i didn't pick the experiment in terror because i had a zither uh tune on this one but didn't I, uh, experiment in terror just play here locally as a part of some it might have and you know if anybody had the chance to see it, it's out of print on dvd which is a real shame because i think it's actually a very good movie it's with the it's it's not a comedy uh, and it's with uh, Lee Remick and Glenn Ford, and Lee Remick is a bank employee who's being terrorized by a guy who wants her to steal money for him, and Glenn Ford is the lawman who's got to help her out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's 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 a very good suspense movie. I I like it a lot. But um, so the music that I did choose in this case is probably my favorite uh, piece of Henry Mancini music, which is the theme for the 1964 film A Shot in the Dark. Uh, which is the first unofficial uh, Inspector Clouseau sequel. I mean, all of them were named, you know, the Pink Panther does this and the Pink Panther does that afterwards. But I mean, it is the second film to feature uh, that Peter Sellers character. Uh, based, I, on, based on a murder mystery farce that does not involve Inspector Clouseau. Like, yeah, I think they, inclu- they included him in a pre-existing 
play, and uh, it's wonderful. Yeah, I think it's just Blake Edwards loved what Peter Sellers did with the Inspector Clouseau character in the first Pink Panther movie so much. That, well, here's something else we can do, and yeah. it just kept going from there. Uh, but and, it, and it's a great movie. I, I love pretty much all the Pink Panther movies, and uh, and that's another reason why I, I, I kind of played out with the, the Pink Panther theme is just, it ended up getting used in all the other movies and I wish they had used the theme from A Shot in the Dark for all the movies instead because I think it's a much it's a much better piece of music it's got a really cool jazzy swing to it and the lead instrument is another weird instrument it's the one that I mistakenly uh, alluded to earlier which is the harmonium which is sort of a, a cousin of the accordion because it's sort of a reed instrument You it, it looks like a piano it's sort of an upright piano and you do play it with you know with keys but like an accordion there are bellows in there that you know, you had to have to be operated in order to get any sound to come out and with normal harmoniums there's going to be a foot pedal that you have to pump it to get the sound to come out but in the case of this theme for uh, a shot in the dark there's an it's an entirely different one it's an indian harmonium which is smaller it's about two feet wide and maybe less than a foot deep and it's meant to be sort of portable and the bellows is in the back so it's a smaller keyboard and you can only really play it with one hand because you got to be operating the bellows in the back to get any sound out so you can play you know one-handed chords but that's about it and the 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 sound and the timbre of the instrument i think works perfectly if you think about the character of inspector clouseau because the, the music surrounding the theme in the theme with all the, the the other instruments uh it's like i say it's very jazzy and very cool but then there's this indian harmonium in the middle of it and when it goes into the solo because of the the limited range of the harmonium the solo is pretty much purely played in the lower uh, uh register of the instrument and there's no polite way to put it. It just sounds like farting. <laughs> and it, it's it's just hilarious. And so it's just a wonderful, uh, uh, fantastic piece of music that, you know, you don't even have to be familiar with the movies to listen to it and appreciate it. And the other thing uh, I, I'll ask you to pay attention to, there's a really cool thing going on here where the guitar is playing a descending uh, a series of notes and the bass is playing an ascending uh, uh series of notes so you got that sort of weird crisscross thing going on there in the instrumentation that's something uh, in the arrangement that i really enjoy oh, and it took right. me about 20 years to notice it well let's uh <laughs> let's all notice it right now
Um, oh, my turn again. Yep. Okay. Um, uh, this is a, this is a movie that I love that I still feel defensive about. I think because um, it's not cool. I think to like this director anymore. Um, but I like that little head thing you just did. Um, but that's not actually what I want to talk about here. What I want to talk about here is the idea that sometimes you know, I listen to a lot of music, and sometimes I think. There's only so many notes. How is it that music has existed for so long and there's still new songs <laughs> to come up with? And um, the answer is because people, uh, the proof that we're far from being done coming with music is that uh, James Newton Howard made three notes last an entire movie when he did <laughs> the music for Signs. Because it almost every piece of music is the same three note like it's like a it's like a waltz in fast don't ruin it for us dude (laughs) right um and so i i i I knew that i wanted some piece of that um and so i decided not to go with like the uh like the hands of fate part one or two at the end which is the big swelling version or or the overly like uh, table setting version of I, I think it's called first crop circles i decided decided to pick a very subtle one from the middle of the movie it's only it tracks only about a minute long it's called baby monitor so you'll know what part of the movie that's from if you're familiar mm-hmm. with signs uh, as familiar as i am because i've seen it so many times it's a very <laughs> so good movie i like it so much um and uh th- this doesn't uh it, it's a piece of music that just sort of goes away at the end of a minute it doesn't swell or anything it's kind of just uh, quietly and creepily, eerily propulsive. And it's called Baby Monitor. So let's listen to it now. All right, Tyler. All right. So, um, in the spirit of creepy and uh, people that it's not cool to like anymore, um, so Danny Elfman is somebody that at this point, if I say Danny Elfman, most people are like, okay, got it. I know exactly what to expect. Uh, because at this point, when you say Danny Elfman, you also think Tim Burton, and he's not a filmmaker that's going to surprise you. Um, and Danny Elfman has kind of gone that way as well. Like, he, he knows what is expected of him, and he will deliver that. And there was a time, and basically anything you say about Tim Burton, you could say of Danny Elfman, which was he used to be such a fun and exciting composer. I loved what he did with the Batman Returns score. Uh, but lately, just, he's not that interesting. Um, and that is unfortunate. But... There was a time when he was churning out stuff that, yes, it had his 
specific mark, but it was a little different for every film. Like the like even Batman and Batman Returns. Yes, there are themes that he would return to, and it still had that playful yet dark quality, but just different instrumentation everything was so much more ornate and victorian in batman returns and he seemed to have gone with that i'm not playing anything from batman returns i am going to play something uh that uh that he did with um sam raimi which was 1998's a simple plan where i find this score fascinating because it really doesn't you kind of have to listen for danny elfman he uses different instrumentation uh, than he than he usually does, and it has it still feels really creepy, and especially this is this will be uh, I believe the opening titles, and much like uh, much like the sign score, it opens with three notes on a piano, but the piano sounds a little bit out of tune, and it plays those notes, just those three notes. And then other and then other in- instruments come in, and then it plays those three notes again. And then I think you're then I think it's done with those notes, and then it shows up again at the end, in the end credits. Well, and it is so, it does such a great job. You are so immediately unnerved, and mm-hmm. you know you're about to be thrown into a very suspenseful, very disturbing but, story. Uh, the, uh, but the main thing that always sticks out to me about A Simple Plan, Sam Raimi's A Simple Plan, having also read uh, the book by mm. Scott Smith, is that? Scott Smith, yeah. It's a very simple name. I always forget forget it. Um, simple Plan for a Simple Name. But uh, what always sticks out to me about that movie is not the suspense, because I think the book is much more of a suspense story. Okay. The movie is much sadder. It, yeah. It, 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 it's... Um, Something I said about the Hunger Games adaptation is that it has all the same ingredients as the book, but in different proportions. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I feel about A Simple Plan. It is a very human story, along it, with being suspenseful. Yeah, yes. where, where, whereas Scott, Scott Smith's A Simple Plan is something you should absolutely read. It's an awesome book. But You should also read his The Ruins, yeah. which is a very <laughs> suspenseful book. I didn't see that movie. It's not good. Um, but uh, have you read A Simple Plan? Uh, no, I haven't read any of those books. I've, it, only, I've seen A Simple Plan. You'll, you'll have a not in your stomach reading that and i felt less of that in the movie i just felt there's much more sadness yeah. and um i think if i'm remembering any of the music correctly which is uh, it's a good chance that i'm not mm-hmm. but i think in danny elfman's scores even the tim burton ones that you think of mm-hmm. the better ones there is a sadness to them i think uh, edward scissorhands is a very sad movie you oh know? Yeah. yeah the, the batman movies are but they they have a um maybe cheekiness i think when he works with tim burton yeah and i feel like this one is like him almost going like no seriously now this is sad it's there's a tragic quality to it and that's the thing is the piano sets the the stage for like oh this is this is unsettling but then what he does with uh with the strings there's a real sense of longing and unhappiness there um and so uh we'll play i believe this is the west did you have anything to say yes i'm sorry go ahead no i'm 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 very interested in in hearing this uh, myself i don't think i've heard the because i haven't seen the movie so definitely i wouldn't have heard i, mean, I haven't seen the movie in a long time okay, i was gonna right. say so uh, by the same token i haven't heard the music in a long time either and i, I don't think i remember it that well it's just you're right whenever you, you think when you say the name danny elfman then really yeah it's like in the same way that when you say ennio morricone you're automatically going to think of a soprano singing mm-hmm. uh-huh, you know uh-huh. you know not words but just singing something uh, when you say the name danny elfman i just think of a bunch of children going la 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 <laughs> and so it it would be really ref- and, and, and it's kind of unfair too because he's he's done some other things that 
I thought were really good over the oh, years. Yeah. I mean, even recently, just like the the music that he did for the uh, the first Hulk movie, which was terrible. The movie uh, I really I liked, like it. I really like the score because it's it's actually is very uh, Herman esque. It was very very reminiscent of Bernard Herman, particularly uh, of uh, his score for Vertigo, which I thought was a very uh, different approach to take for what is ostensibly a superhero movie to to go in in the direction that Elfman took the music for the Hulk. I thought it was uh, it was a pretty bold thing to do. Well, yeah. that's that's that is a whether you like it or not, that whole movie is pretty bold in its visual style and what it's trying to accomplish. And it's worth noting that like when he works with like he's working with Ang Lee there. Mm-hmm. And it's also a story that has a great deal of sadness to mm-hmm. it. And so yeah, that actually is a is a really good score of his. I, I'm trying to think of like the last score of his that I really liked, and I don't dislike any of them. Yeah, but that one really, especially coming a year after the Spider-Man score, which was fine. Um, but yeah, Hulk was similar, but it had it felt felt like there was more life to it, frankly, and more emotion to it. Well, let's let's but, listen to a simple plan real quick, and we'll come back and say right. a couple more things about Danny Elfman. Okay, so here's the main title from A Simple Plan. Okay, what I wanted to say now, um, West, actually, and correct me if I'm wrong, my memory's wrong, but didn't you and I meet for the first time after the Danny Elfman panel at Comic-Con? That's right. 
in between Danny Elfman and, and Stan uh, Freeberg. Stan Freeberg. Yeah. Yes. That was awesome. Yeah. That was like a two for one there in greatness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It was, it was a really good. It was the first morning of Comic Con 2010, Thursday morning. I got to meet Stan Freeberg later. Uh, I, yeah, and in 2009, I, I guess I sort of met him. I went to his. He was selling his, the, uh, his CDs right. uh, out on the floor, and yeah. so I, I met him briefly. In yeah, 2009. That, that's that same thing for me. I, I bought a, bought a CD. I do want to say real quick. Uh, I don't want to get a lot of tweets and emails saying. <laughs> Danny Elfman did this score, and it's really good. He's done a lot of great scores. There's no question about it. Oh, sure. Um, I don't want to make it seem as though I don't like him. Even I even liked part of his uh, Dark Shadows score. I wish that the whole film had gone more in that melodramatic, that just that big orchestral direction that you find in the intro. Yeah, and I so haven't I feel seen like that movie yet. He, I feel like he does some good work there, but it's just been a while since he has excited me as a composer. That's all I mean to say. Yeah. Actually, just real quick, one of the more, more interesting things that he did recently, and again, this is a movie that I haven't seen, but I heard the soundtrack just because when I heard what he was going for, I was just so surprised and curious, was uh, his score for Alice in Wonderland, mm-hmm. where he's very clearly paying homage to Philip Glass. Mm-hmm. If you've heard the score for, for that one, I mean, he's just, it's, it's very obvious to anybody who's familiar with Philip Glass's work that is exactly what Danny Elfman is doing. And I thought that was really uh, interesting to see him go in, in that direction, which is a direction that he's never gone in before to the best of my knowledge. Hmm. Well, I think um, it's, it's, it's West turn again, but I think we wanted to take a brief intermission, right? Sure. Absolutely. So let's do that. All right. Okay, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that little bit of classic movie music. That's right. Um, let's uh, let's move on, uh, West. All right, now now I'm going to go weird. Um, <laughs> All right. Now we've talked about uh, you know synthesizers, and this is I'm not even sure if this music is played on synthesizers or if it's just weird electronic <laughs> sounds. I mean, um, there's certainly a sort of a history of uh, purely electronic music. I mean, the one of the I mean the the theremin is an electronic instrument, but I mean there's been no movies just scored purely for a theremin that I know of. Uh, the first purely electronic score that I can remember would be for the 1956 science fiction film Forbidden Planet, which I mean, if mm-hmm. you if you remember that it's there are no melodies, there are no harmonies, it's just uh, bleeps and bloops that were provided by a, a buried couple Lewis and BB Barron. Um, and it's it's a really fascinating score to listen to, but you know, boy, you you can't dance to it. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, Walter later Wendy Carlos, uh, you know, has done some uh, some interesting things, uh, you know, with synthesizers, purely synthesized uh, music. Like I know that she did some things for uh, A Clockwork Orange yeah. and for The Shining, and later she sort of uh, combined uh, orchestral elements uh, with synthesizers with uh, the the first Tron movie, but. Uh, this is purely p- 
purely electronic music. It's my understanding that there are some more like regular percussion and piano in uh, parts of the, this score for this movie, but for the life of me, I can't hear any in this selection. Um, this is music from the 1971 film The Andromeda Strain, which was directed by Robert Wise, and the composer is a jazz musician named uh, Gil Millay. Um, it's just, it's a very weird electronic score, and it it's, I guess, definitely meant to sort of convey a sort of futuristic vibe, because even though the Andromeda strain takes place in what was then the present, as a, a group of scientists are trying to uh, race against the clock to isolate uh, uh, a terrible thing that came from outer space, because a satellite lands, uh, crash lands to Earth with something from outer space on it, and that something from outer space wipes out an entire small New Mexico town, except for a drunk old man and a crying baby. And... A group of scientists uh, have to repair to this deep underground uh, military research lab to figure out what the heck's going on. And so the the score, there, again, there are there are no melodies, there's no harmonies, it's all just, I mean, there are some rhythms in, in various tempos. One of the most interesting things about this particular piece is that there is definitely, at a certain point, there's a sort of a heartbeat-type rhythm uh, un, uh, underlying the, uh, the, the sounds, which kind of makes sense in that you know, the Andromeda Strain is on a on a certain level, a film about biological horror. So uh, this track is called Wildfire, which was the name of the uh, the base in the film. Uh, Wildfire from the film The Andromeda Strain by Gil Millay.
right. My turn again. Um, and I'm, I'm also going to go a little bizarre. Not with my movie choice. I think most people probably who listen to this podcast like this this movie. But um, this particular piece is not a part of anything that could be called the theme of the movie. It's just, uh, to me, one of the first times uh, I really remember sitting in a theater and uh, and and really contemplating like how different this scene would be playing without the music. Um, the movie is Punch Drunk Love. Um, this track is called Tabla, and it's um, mostly just tabla percussion um, played almost anti melodically. Uh, there's not uh, there's not really a time signature you can find in it. Um, and uh, my, my memory serves the part of the movie is he uh adam sandler is in his warehouse office thing and i think um his uh uh his 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 sister has has brought emily watson am i right about the right part of the i movie? think so yeah and then there's like a mishap with a forklift yeah. and then he's like trying not to bring attention to the thing in his office that he's just pulled out of the street right the uh the organ thing that's right I, you know what? And, i haven't seen the movie uh because okay. at that time i had developed an intense and enduring hatred for adam sandler that <laughs> led me to refuse to because uh mr deeds goes to town the frank capra film is one of my favorite movies of all time and he ruined it with his remake and i just you know i was willing You're to referring give, to little nicky of course <laughs> no no mr deeds you know i was willing to give him a pass you know with all the other nonsense that he was doing but then when he took that movie and did what he did with it i just oh i just despised him and so even though as much as i love uh anderson as a, as a filmmaker but one thing though i do very distinctly remember is that i remember reading that the film begins with the main character finding a discarded mellotron in the street yeah, right yeah <laughs> uh but the mellotron is not used in this piece i don't think unless it is in the background the the, the driving force is the the tabla yeah. percussion and it's and basically it's it's building towards one of this character's many breakdowns in the film right yeah but i think if Maybe a hack composer or something were to look at that scene without music and think, what kind of music should go here? Yeah. He would go to something that plays up maybe the farcical elements of it. Right. Because it is kind of, there's, he's trying to keep a lot of things uh, from boiling over at once and yeah. it's not going well. And, you know, um, and uh, uh, so I think there could be a way to make that funnier than it is. Yeah, uh, as it is right now, it's, it's the kind of farce where it's like, is this guy going to kill himself at the end of this scene, or maybe I'll kill myself? Yeah, yeah. You're, like I really <laughs> like I feel myself crawling out of my skin in a good way. Yeah, during this scene, it's a really powerful and particularly particularly ostentatious use of music. Even I think for this movie and for and for uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, who who uses music ostentatiously. It, go, uh, it goes. It goes back to something that we were talking about last week, which is sometimes a piece of score. We, like we have an idea of what score is supposed to do, which is it's supposed to underscore the emotion of a uh, of a scene, and sometimes influence how we're supposed to feel. But every once in a while, like in uh, the informant uh, and this film, you'll get a piece of score that is very much supposed to inform very directly very overtly how you're supposed to be feeling to mm -hmm. the point where you it will not be ignored it's not going to fade into the background it is trying to put you in the exact headspace as the main character and if the character's in an unpleasant headspace uh that's where you're going to be yeah so let's listen to this uh <laughs> right now
All right, Tyler. All right, so um, I'm going to talk about a piece of music from uh, the Werkmeister Harmonies, which was a film directed by Bellatar, and it has it's a beautiful film in every sense of the word. I think it is visually gorgeous, even when what is on screen is quite ugly. And the music, I remember, okay, I remember when we first saw the film, I won't go through the whole story, but I remember really not liking it. But the one thing, and I've, it has since grown on me, it's one of my favorite movies of all time now. Um, but one thing that even at the time when I didn't like it, I was like, I would really like to own that score because it is so beautiful. And so, I mean, it has that mournful quality to it, especially mm-hmm. because it's just... There's de- there's a definite melody to it, and it just, it rises and falls, but it goes on and on. There's no build to it, like over the course of the track. It just is there. Um, and if you've seen uh, the film, you know that that's very much the that's the essence of the film. Is there are scenes that just kind of go on, and they lull you into this almost a trance. And uh, and this piece of music, uh, as it raw is 10 minutes long uh i have faded it out after i think over about two minutes okay enough that you'll you'll get like when other instruments come in and you'll get enough little rises and falls within there um but the the composer is uh i don't know if this is how you say it, and frankly i don't even really know if this is if i've got the first and last name right in the sense that okay it's uh mihali vig i have also heard vig mihali I don't know which one is first and which one is last. I apologize. Um, I think it's Mihaly Vig. And so it is a beautiful piece of score. Um, and uh, it is, yes, kind of sad at times. Uh, by kind of, I mean immensely. And, <laughs> but it is, it's haunting. And uh, if you haven't seen the film, see it. And uh, it's just got a great just a just wonderful music to it so this is a, a bit of music from the Werkmeister harmonies
All right, we're down to our uh, the home stretch. Yeah. Hope everybody saved the best for last. No. Um, oops. <laughs> <laughs> I think I did save my favorite for last, but we'll get to that in a second, uh, or probably more than a second. Uh, West. Yeah, I definitely. I, I'm not sure if it's uh, the very best for last, but it's one of my favorites, and I really wanted to leave everybody with uh, something more like an up note. Um, Philip Glass is my favorite living composer. Period. Uh, doesn't have anything to do with uh, film or with opera or with ballet or whatever. Just uh, as far as composers go, he's the the cat's meow uh, in my eyes. Uh, he, I've been a fan of his since the uh, the early mid '80s, and uh, I it's been fascinating to hear him grow uh, as a composer. You know, starting out very early on with uh, just straight what they called uh, minimalist music, which was very just. There's no there's no melodies. It's just sort of uh, arpeggiated chords, just da 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 things like that. And then they he'll build on them and add notes and subtract notes, and and they were compositions that could go on for literally an hour. And to some people, it's just wow, this is the most boring thing I've ever heard. Hi, mom. But for me, I just I fell in love with that stuff. And but as he's gotten older and gone on, when he's gone on to do operas uh he's gone on to do of course uh, many film scores uh he's done a series of symphonies his ninth symphony just uh, recently premiered here in los angeles uh in april i believe it was conducted by john adams another uh sort of fellow minimalist composer from kind of came out of the same uh, era um but he's done some increasingly more and more interesting work uh more sort of diversity in terms of his sound and this film here this is the 2006 film called the illusionist which i actually didn't see when it came out just because uh it was another one of those spectacular coincidences where hollywood said well now we have uh, two competing films uh based in the in the old uh, in the past about magicians <laughs> and there was there was this one and there was the prestige the christopher nolan film and i saw that one and i loved it and i thought well you know what what could the illusionist have for me except for the <laughs> philip glass music which i can just go out and buy on cd which i did um but then later on uh, uh somebody uh, uh that i work with uh she said hey you should see this movie and she loaned me the dvd and i watched it and i, I really like it it's actually it's 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 a nice movie it's it's very different from uh christopher nolan's film christopher nolan uh just by his very nature is just kind of uh, very reserved with the emotions uh-huh. i think it's uh, safe to say uh so you you never really get too deeply involved with any of his characters whereas the illusionist is a, a very boldly uh, romantic film and that's why you would think that philip glass would be kind of a weird choice to to write the music for that kind of film because uh, his music generally again it's it's very measured it's very repetitive you wouldn't necessarily think of it as romantic and yet he really goes for a romantic uh, vein with this score he's still doing kind of the same things he still has the sort of the driving uh, rhythms with the with the strings and there's still sort of arpeggiated chords throughout there but it has a sort of uh, a tone of romantic longing and almost romantic desperation to it that fits the story perfectly and is kind of unique in terms of what Philip Glass has been doing up till now. So that's why the, the score for The Illusionist is uh, something that uh, it's it's something that I really kind of come back to time and again whenever I'm I'm listening to Philip Glass's music because it's it's very distinctive among a lot of the other stuff that he's been doing. And I think for people who 
aren't necessarily that crazy about minimalism or to think that he, his early stuff is boring. Uh, I think this will be a, a distinct change of pace. I think this will be something that you can get into and you can appreciate as I do. So this is the uh, the opening theme music for the 2006 uh, film written and directed by Neil Berger, uh, The Illusionist, written by Philip Glass. West, um, did you pick that because it's because it's distinctive among his work, and that you feel like people might—it's a side people might not know of him, or is it? Would you actually consider it among your favorites? Of, of both, him? both. Actually, that's why it was kind of the ideal pick for me because there's definitely there are plenty of Philip Glass pieces that I could have thrown in. There's definitely the stuff from the Hours, there's stuff from the the Katsi trilogy. I originally thought, well, oh man, vessels from Koyanis Katsi, that would be great, but I don't know if anybody wants to be subjected to something eight minutes long like that. <laughs> so. Uh, but then, and because the illusionist is, like I say, it's one of my favorites and it's, it's so unique to, uh, in terms of, you know, compared to all the other stuff that he normally does. And I think that is, is kind of more audience friendly in terms of general audiences. So I, and like I say, he is my favorite composer. So I feel like this would be a really good way to kind of maybe get people over onto my camp. Um, yeah, I should I should listen. I I've never seen the illusion, illusionist, so I should listen to to more of that. I think I stands out for me. Quinn Scotty, 
uh, including a song that I think is called Pruitt Igo during the uh, yeah. when they show the collapsing of the Pruitt Igo uh, projects, which are in St. Louis, where I'm from, so has you know uh, cultural relevance to me. And I missed that documentary, the Pruitt Igo myth, that I hear is amazing, and it was playing right down the street from my work. I heard about and, it, but and, I, I haven't seen it. Um, but anyway, and, and then of course the Fog of War is also Fog, yeah that uh, a, a song a, a track from the Fog of War soundtrack was almost uh, uh, going to be played here, but then when you mentioned you had some filled glass, I decided to discard it. But yeah, that to me, I think is just, uh, that's probably my favorite of his, although I do like what he did with uh, the Truman Show, and uh, and there's a nice, the hours, even though I don't even like that movie very much, like his music really does a great job as far as linking the times together while also having this kind of uh, a quality that I can only describe as swirling. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but the fog of war, I, I love that because it really does seem to, there's a, of course a militarism to it, but also it feels like the music of a man's life over the course of his whole life. But do you, anyway, do you guys know a playwright? I, I'm pretty sure you do Tyler. And I can't remember his last name. It's David something. And he wrote, a series of one acts that are collected in the collection called It's All in the Timing. Do you know? Yes. Uh, I performed uh, Variations on the Death of Trotsky. I was going to say, okay. Is it Ives? I think it might be Ives. Or I think Ikes so. Or something. Do you know uh, this guy's work? No, I'm not familiar well, with that. Okay. It's All in the Timing is six one acts. Um, and Variations on the Death of Trotsky and I think another one that I think might just be called Ding is mm. something that uh, you see attempted on their own. Uh, often because i think they're the easiest to put on but one of the six one acts is called philip glass buys a loaf of bread and i've only ever seen it performed <laughs> once because it seems like it is a very difficult thing to do it is really just a scene of a person buying a loaf of bread at the market but everyone is talking not they're using their voices to say words and repetition of words in a way that mimics philip glass right. music <laughs> okay uh it's 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 pretty amazing to actually see done and done well i saw it performed at of all places the university of uh nebraska lincoln when i was there visiting when i was considering going there for college so my senior <laughs> year of i guess this is my junior year of high school i went up to to lincoln uh, for the weekend to look at the school and um caught their theater department doing the entirety of it's all in the timing. Hmm. It was it was great. Wow! I gotta, so, yeah, I gotta I gotta see that. Philip Glass buys a loaf of bread. <laughs> <laughs> all right, um, I definitely saved my favorite for last. And when I talked earlier about um, stuff that gets stuck in my head from movies, I I left this one off because I didn't want to spoil it. Um, but also, now I uh, as I talked about last week, I spend most of my music listening time listening to rock and roll or popular music you know um and rock and roll is basically popular forms of music so the things that tend to get stuck in my head or that i return to most often are um you know popular music um but i would say this score and probably this particular song more so than the others although there are a lot of good tracks uh i guess on there just calling it a song is probably showing my pop music bias yeah uh but this track this piece uh, I find myself listening to uh, as often as some of the, you know, uh, I don't know, Velvet Underground songs that I go back to. It's a, a, uh, an incredibly, uh, uh, what, is, what, what is the word? It's it's distinct. Yeah. Uh, it's it's memorable. It's also very pretty. Um, in, if you think of pretty the right way. Yeah. Um, and it is, 
Uh, it is from the film Ravenous, mm-hmm. which had uh, two uh, composers, Damon mm-hmm. Albarn, whom we know from Blur and Gorillaz, uh, and then Michael Nyman. But they did not collaborate. They uh, wrote separate songs. This is an Albarn uh, mm-hmm. contribution. Um, and the one I picked is called Boyd's Journey. So I think we should listen to it, or to some of it at least, mm-hmm. uh, and then come back and talk about it. All right. Okay, so I picked, um, I picked Boyd's Journey over the uh, the track that's just called End Titles, um, even though I think the End Titles one is probably more 
traditional sounding or less uh, i guess the reason why i listen to it first is because i don't know how to talk about music so i thought i'd have some good references uh and you, you'll, you'll notice within the the instrumentation there are like even within single notes it's not really held it's sort of wavering because of these instruments that, i don't know what those instruments are it sounds like an accordion i, yeah. I don't know what it is i'm bad at that some uh, horns come in there at the yeah, end it and- starts out with just uh what it- to me, what I'm hearing is it started out with a banjo, mm-hmm. and then an accordion comes right. in, and then there's a fiddle in there somewhere, yes, yes. and then there's some brass. This is one of the things that I really like. I've never seen Ravenous. I hadn't heard this piece of music until today, and I really liked it. I really liked the way that it sort of starts out. It really just seems like it feels like an alien folk tune to me that's (laughs) like that's the best way i can put it and it's the way it starts out with one instrument and then it just sort of gradually builds as more instrumentation is added in until it reaches this sort of uh this really nice crescendo of sound and then it like a wave it comes on onto you and then it's it goes back Mm -hmm. and it's something that i i i really like i i like the way that that works i like the way that the instrumentation works uh within this piece of music uh, and and I, and I picked uh, well the the end titles one is um, uh, I didn't pick it for two reasons uh, even though it it uh, probably sound would sound more pleasing to the average listener's ear uh, one because it's synth heavy and we already did synth uh, we've already done enough electronic music here uh, but also because I think this track Boyd's Journey sounds more like the film mm-hmm. uh, you know I mean you you uh, refer to it as a folk tale the the film takes place in the late 1860s early 1870s in in, uh, nor- in northern yeah. california or the california territory i don't mm-hmm. think it's a state yet or maybe it is i don't know my american history quite quite well enough but uh uh so it it does have that that folk music uh feeling and uh i do want to note that uh if david hadn't gone with this i would have we discussed this ahead of time that because the minute it's like okay well we're gonna do this so one of us is gonna play ravenous right right and uh, since you had a bigger <laughs> field right. to choose from you allowed me ravenous yeah. so you, you also allowed me gremlins but i don't know that that would have made your cut quite. well i yeah I, that that probably wouldn't have made my cut even though it's wonderful um and uh yes it, and but i actually i think i might have picked if it were me i might have picked the end titles one um but they're both fascinating and i think boyd's journey that works better within the film itself it, mm-hmm. it's played by the way it's called boyd's journey and it's it plays I mean, almost immediately uh, in the film, like maybe mm-hmm. five minutes in, during a montage in which the character is, you know, traveling from from uh, where he is to where he's where he's going to be uh, for the duration of the yeah. uh, of the film, and that's the music that's playing during this. One could say. An adventure, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like that's that's you this kinda, movie's version of adventure. Yeah, you kind of know he's not necessarily headed for glory, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> on the other side of the continent, um, it's a, it's a wonderful piece of music. And I remember when I first, I can't say enough good things about Ravenous in general. Uh, the movie is a gem. It is also something of a miracle. Yeah, I have no yeah. idea how any, if, how it got made. If you listen to the commentary on the DVD, uh, which I generally is not not something that I. Uh, recommend I, I, as I as probably you figured out from our first segment about Kevin Smith. I'm kind of a purist, but movie watching. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is a really fascinating uh, commentary, and you you find out the story that the the original director was fired very early on. Mm-hmm. Um, Robert Carlyle had just been in Priest, uh, directed by uh, Antonia Bird, or yeah, in, Antonia Bird, um, and so he recommended her to come in and take over. So she 
started like I mean the schedule was set and everything. I mean she had to jump into this with almost no familiarity yeah. with the thing going in. And also uh, they talk about how whoever made the schedule did it like essentially backwards. They did all the interiors first, and then they did the exteriors. While they're filming in Romania in the winter, like they, they were there forever because they kept having to wait for a few hours for it to stop snowing. Right, uh, oh, it boy. sounded like a hellish shoot. When I when it, so those are practical considerations. When I say it's a miracle, I mean it is a comedy, a horror comedy about cannibalism. That it's a period film. Yeah, a supernatural with, horror comedy. Super, yeah, period with film. with a, a surprising amount of Historical like character epic. depth. Yeah. And it's just—it's such a weird thing to exist. Oh, and let me—and um, um, let me, it's got that. It has this score. And let me run down this like, cast for you. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Guy Pierce is, I guess, the star, and yeah. the his foil, I guess, the antagonist is Robert Carlyle, as mm-hmm. I mentioned. We also have Jeffrey Jones. Yeah. We have Jeremy Davies. Mm-hmm. We have Neil McDonough. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have John Spencer, not of John Spencer's Blues Explosion, but right. of The West Wing. Yeah. Um, who am I missing? David Arquette. David Arquette. Yeah. You weren't expecting that one, were you? <laughs> no, no you, you won't be. <laughs> um, and then there's uh, a guy, in, uh, something Spinella, I don't remember, but uh, mm-hmm. he was in a very fascinating right. film called Rubber uh, that oh. came out yes, in yes, the yes, last yes, couple yes. years. Um, and uh, I feel like there's there's one or two uh, others. Other, no, I, mean, I, I can't remember the the woman's name. There's only one woman in the entire movie, right. and she's hilarious. Yeah, um, uh, it's yeah, it is a, a crazy movie that I don't think enough people have seen, and it's uh, but it is the movie. It is a movie that when I recommend it to someone, I mean, I'm careful about who. Like, oh, yeah. I kind of have to know the person to know if they're going to like this. Again, dark supernatural comedy horror. I recommend uh, it pretty indiscriminately. Piece, <laughs> uh, historical epic, but. Um, when I do recommend it to someone, it, they invariably come back having enjoyed it. It's yeah, it's a wonderful film. And when I first saw it, like I watched it once, and I was like, "Wow, that was really good." And then weeks later, it's just it's like I think I gotta buy that soundtrack. <laughs> like it just it doesn't go away, uh-huh. uh, as I'm sure the listeners are discovering because they <laughs> haven't actually heard anything we've said since we played it because right. they're just <laughs> whistling it to themselves until they go insane. Yeah. All right. Uh, so I wanted to say one more thing. That, um, I'm almost kind of I'm glad the music is the way it is, but I was kind of disappointed when I found that it wasn't a collaboration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had the same experience when I looked at the credits for uh, Ron Howard's Ransom. Hmm. Which is music by uh, wait who is it Howard Shore? Uh, no, I think that Hans one is Zimmer? James Horner. James, James Horner, Horner. That's right. Yes, it's James Horner and Billy Corgan. Um, <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, and if you buy the soundtrack, the first half of the soundtrack is James Horner, and the second half is Billy Corgan. And I would have loved if those two had actually collaborated. Um. Okay, so I guess this is the the last one of the uh, episode. Uh, okay. You, all the pressure's on you. I know. This better be good. <laughs> I know. I am. Uh, ske- I'm looking at the name of the thing here, and I am skeptical. I know. So um, uh, even though I've seen the movie, I don't remember. Oh boy, you are gonna. This is gonna knock your fucking <laughs> socks off. So, um, okay. We were talking earlier about Danny Elfman and his music for Hulk and Spider Man and batman and that sort of thing uh and then you mentioned the john williams score for superman uh there are a lot of 
you know superhero themes, uh, there there really wasn't one for Iron Man or Captain America or Thor, which is why it's notable that who's Alan Silvestri that does the music for uh, the the Avengers. Yeah. But there's a definite theme there. Oh boy, for there the, is for the team, and it's it's quite good. Yeah, I really like it. Um, and uh, and I th- and I think that's part of it. I think I think a superhero film sort of should have a theme like somebody that just uh, music that announces them like you you know who they are when you hear it um one of my favorite superhero films even though it is not a beloved film is uh the shadow uh which was you know uh, came out in 1992 or three i don't totally recall um i saw a midnight show of it opening day with my dad and brother I, i don't know why we felt we needed to see at midnight or why it was even showing uh it was not a successful film but um you know it's based on the on the 1920s uh radio serials and the uh, the not, not were they comic books or were they just books oh man i i don't know <coughs> i don't recall i but, think it, i think it was comics okay but, it, but there was definitely a radio series right with the orson welles yeah which of course uh, I I didn't know who Orson Welles was at the time, and now I'm a huge fan of his. But I was I for some reason I don't know why I wanted to see The Shadow, and I liked it a lot. I still like it. It's over there on the movie shelf, um, and the theme, the the whole score is good. But the theme done by Jerry Goldsmith, who of course has created some amazing uh, movie themes in general. Like, I like think say Gremlins. It's all right. That has its moments, but. Um, <laughs> The uh, I could I could do without the synth, but um, <laughs> this is I think one of the best superhero themes, and and it really captures the essence of of who the shadow is as a hero. There's a kind of a otherworldly supernatural quality to it, and uh, and then it and then it blows up in this bombastic. Uh, just enjoyable i don't know it it has an old timey quality to that piece to that music it feels like superman it's it, it it there's some darkness to it but for the most part it's just big and heroic and uh, as opposed to say uh batman which is a, a wonderful theme but there's a it's ve- definitely dark tonally right and there's a bit of darkness here but it's mostly it feels like the 1920s as as far as the the mood that it's trying to set and i absolutely love it and it has a nice build-up and a nice payoff and so uh does it do either of you remember the music from the shadow no you well, actually you know i've that's another one that i haven't seen but i remember hearing the theme from the shadow on a, a sort of a, a collection of uh, jerry goldsmith music that mm-hmm. i have and you're right i do remember it being very sort of uh old-fashioned melodrama that that sort of melodrama uh, you know serialized adventure kind of sound to yeah. it that it it's if it is based on you know that old radio series and comic book mm-hmm. or whatever it was at the time then it, it yeah it would be wholly appropriate particularly if it does take place in as a period film and it's yeah. not set in the present then right. it makes perfect sense and jerry goldsmith is you know He's so versatile. He's able to do all kinds of different things. We know he's able to sort of create a a heroic theme. If you've ever seen the first Star Trek movie, Mm -hmm. he laid it out right there. And that that theme that he wrote for that first movie was later used for the entire uh, Next Generation television series. Hmm. So, yeah. So let's uh, 
Have we played it yet? We have not. We have not. Okay, sorry. Um, okay, so let's let's uh, give a listen to that. Okay. All right. That, uh, hopefully that, that hopefully that <laughs> hopefully that ended okay. ended us well. I got to rewatch the shadow. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, this didn't take it didn't last as long as I feared that it would. Once we add the music in, I'm sure it'll still be a pretty pretty long episode. But yeah. <laughs> I'm sure the listener at home will be glad to know that it's not as long as I was afraid it would go. Yes. Um. So um. But in the interest of not keeping it going any longer, let's uh, let's wrap up. Okay. Um, as usual, you can find us and our awesome movie reviews, which are at least as good as Manola Dargus's, at <laughs> battleshippretension.com, uh, where you can also listen to the podcast. You can email us, uh, david at battleshippretension.com or tyler at battleshippretension.com. You can follow uh, me on Twitter at twitter.com slash thepretension or follow Tyler on Twitter at twitter.com slash morelessons, which is the official Twitter of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which you can find at morethanonelesson.com. And my other podcast is the weekly television review show Previously On, which you can find at previouslyonshow.com. West, where can people find you and your work on the internet? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. West Anthony. Uh, my other uh, show, uh, well, this isn't my show, so, so, I, so I don't have another show. It's kind of your show. <laughs> uh, uh, our uh, film podcast, uh, The Auteur Cast, which I uh, co-host with Rudy Obias, uh, you can find it on iTunes. You can find it at uh, theautourcast.com, or you can go to our uh, Autourcast Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Autourcast, and uh, hit the like button, and you'll get updates on all of our episodes there. And, uh, of course, I'm also uh, writing reviews uh, for you guys, so you can also find me yes. lurking about uh, the Battleship Pretension website. Yes, you're taking, and taking, taking the bullet on a couple of... Uh, yeah. <laughs> what was, Thank, I think, thanks for that. What was like, some direct video stuff? Which I love that we review, but I, I, I'm starting to want to cut down 
on accepting those. <laughs> but they are it is kind of fun. I have one at home. Uh, I, I'm trying to decide if I should review it myself or not. It's called Metal Tornado, <laughs> and it's basically this scientists mess up and create these tornadoes that suck up anything. They're magnetic, so there are sharp, broken pieces of metal flying around and cutting through cities. Why are you on the fence about this? Uh, because because of this. Oh, and it stars Lou Diamond Phillips, whom I love. Oh, uh, yeah. But rated PG. Ah. Come oh, on, man. That Come is on. an R-rated No concept. question about it. <laughs> that that should be dismemberments aplenty. <laughs> um, anyway, what was the one that I'm thinking of with Natalie Zia from, uh, from Justified? That, oh, uh, Insight. Insight, yes. He <laughs> <laughs> did. I, you know, I... I I went in with an open mind. I thought, hey, well, maybe it could be good, and then it wasn't. So. <laughs> uh, before we sign off, I do want to uh, handle uh, some business real quick. Uh, speaking of the Auteur cast, I was recently a guest on there uh, discussing Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Wearing and Love the Bomb. David is going I, to be a guest very soon. Yes, talking about Eyes Wide Shut. I, so, so I imagine I will be uh, – well, I won't be the – it won't be the ultimate uh, – Stanley Kubrick episode because you do a wrap up at the end, so I'll be on the right. penultimate. Have you? So the the premise of your show, right? Is the premise of the auteur cast is that uh, we Rudy and I uh, settle on a filmmaker and we go through their entire filmography, one episode per film, go from in chronological order from start to finish, and then at the end we have a sort of retrospective episode in which we just sort of review over everything that we've uh, looked at before and try and uh, place this director in the context of cinema in in place uh, each of these films within the context of the director's career and try to decide what it is if anything that makes them an auteur so the only time i was when i was on before was for the christopher nolan wrap-up which i know rudy i'm Rudy asked me. I know because Rudy is has the same uh, provocateur streak, contrarian streak that I do, and I know he asked me to be on that just so I could talk shit about Inception. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, pretty much. And <laughs> I'm always happy to oblige. Uh, yeah, there's, there's no. I mean, I, I welcome a contrary opinion myself. So I, it's, yeah. it. I, frankly, it would be a little boring if we were all everybody was just agreeing on everything all the time. So. Well, I'll be, I'll be happy to come back for Eyes Wide Shut, a movie that I like. Okay. Um, and then I did want to also say that uh, a recent, the, the most recent video that we have put out uh, is our review of Dark Shadows, in which we have the king of TV, Paul Goebel, on to talk about uh, TV shows adapted into film. But then within a couple of days of this going up, hopefully it'll yeah. be tomorrow, we will I have... Mean, it's, po- it's possible. That if, you're, if you're like me and you don't listen to everything right away, right. it's a good chance that when, at the time you're listening to us, our next video is right. up which is the Avengers. We will be talking about the Avengers and we will have actor comedian Paul Rust on right. to talk about other uh, superhero films. Paul Rust, uh, the lead from I Love You, Beth Cooper, but also mm-hmm. one of the uh, uh, titular bastards in Inglorious Bastards. Indeed. So be on the lookout for that. And I think that is it. So, uh, Wes, thank you for being here. Thank you again for having me. It's always fun to uh, be over here. Absolutely. Uh, I agree. And uh, thank you at home for listening. And we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.